As the COVID-19 death toll continues to rise, researchers and public health professionals around the world are working to understand just how prevalent the disease is. News stories of the last several months have talked about contact tracing and featured images of drive-through COVID testing. One of the issues that's come up with testing is whether we should test people who don't show signs of infection. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. We have two guests joining us to talk about COVID today. The first is Nick Fisher, who worked at Australia's Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization for 32 years before founding the research and consulting firm Value Metrics. Fisher is also a visiting professor at the University of Sydney. Our second guest is Dennis Truin of Dennis Truin Statistical Consulting before founding his company. Truen worked as a government statistician for 35 years, eventually heading the Australian Bureau of Statistics from 2000 to 2007. Fisher and Truen penned an op-ed together arguing that to really get a handle uh, uh, on the burden of infection in the COVID-19 pandemic, we have to start randomly testing people for the disease. Nick and Dennis, thank you so much for being here today. Pleasure. What compelled you to to write, and I'm not sure, is it one or two op-eds about this sort of issue of of testing, you know, all kinds of people for the disease? Um, perhaps I might set the scene. There, were, there was only one op-ed, but we had a few letters uh, okay. in different papers. Um, and Nick may want to add to uh, what I have to say. Um, the Australian Chief Medical Officer made some early calculations that uh, unless something was done, the pandemic would overwhelm our health system and there would be something like 150,000 deaths. Um, there are some important assumptions in those calculations. One was that the reproduction coefficient or infection coefficient, if you like, would be around about 2.6, which was uh, the situation in Wuhan. Uh, they also made assumptions about the case fatality rate that were somewhat less than what the WHO was saying at uh, about um, but as a result of that, uh, they, the government, the national government, developed a strategy to flatten the curve. And what this in effect meant that the reproduction coefficient had to come down from 2.6 to something less than 1. So they needed to calculate that reproduction coefficient. Um, and to be able to estimate it, they used the number of uh, positive tested cases for COVID-19. That was their data set. Uh, but they also made some key assumptions. Uh, one was that they were finding 80% of symptomatic cases, that they actually were getting the vast uh, majority of, of cases they were actually detecting. They also made another assumption, which I think was very brave, that there were no asymptomatic cases that didn't become, that weren't actually in fact pre-symptomatic. Uh, and these were the two unknowns that Nick and were, were talking about. Uh, the heading in our articles about known unknowns. And the two unknowns were you know, what actually was really happening in the population. Um, and uh, if you want to get reliable estimates of uh, the reproduction coefficient, 
Ra is the top of call. You need to know what these two uh, unknowns were. Um, now, the Australia, as measured, uh, the reproduction coefficient's gone down from 2.6 to 0.4 as a result of restrictions, quarantine, and so forth. Uh, I personally believe that estimate of 0.4 is a bit too low, but the assumption, in particular, assumption about uh, um, no asymptomatic cases that were pre-symptomatic cases is wrong. Um, 0.4 is the lowest number I've seen around the world in terms of um, R. It's lower than what New Zealand achieved, Norway achieved, um, using actually stronger restrictions that were what we used in Australia. So both Nick and I have got uh, some uh, suspicions about that, that number. Um, do you want to add anything, Nick? Thanks, Dennis. I'd just like to take a step back because uh, the the letters that we initially wrote to the letter to the to two newspapers, two national newspapers, um, and then the uh, opinion editorial that we were subsequently invited to write were <coughs> born out of frustration with the fact that the national debate and the national committee that was set up um, had no involvement of statisticians. It, they, they had input from epidemiologists, but not from statisticians. And there were some really obvious statistical questions that didn't appear to um, be occupying anybody's mind, like how many people out there haven't contracted the virus? How many have it but aren't showing symptoms? Um, how many have got symptoms but haven't been tested? All these obvious statistical questions. Also, um, how are things changing? And there was no mechanism, and there is still no mechanism to estimate these things. When I read your, when I read this article, it made me really mad because nobody's doing, this seems so obvious. I'm not a statistician. And I wondered very early on, why aren't any, why isn't anybody doing random testing here? We don't know, we have no handle on this. And, uh, and I think that's certainly true in the, the US. I mean, we're just now starting to get, like Ohio is gonna start doing some random testing right now. There's certainly no US plan for this. And I could say more about that, but won't. Uh, uh, it is happening in some countries, uh, most notable being um, United Kingdom, but there have been surveys we're aware of in um, Iceland, Norway, um, Sweden, um, Netherlands, I believe. Um, but the problem with, um, the underlying problem we're facing in Australia, and this comment was made in Sweden as well, that the health experts seem to regard a, a test of a, a non-positive person as a wasted test. Um, oh. and, and no international survey, there'll be a large number of um, uh, negative tests, of course. Mm. And somehow, um, mentally, they think that's a waste of um, testing resources. Um, I'm not sure what the situation is US, but in Australia, testing resources are no longer in short supply. So using, diverting some of them to a national survey to find out what really is happening in, a, in the population would be, would be value for money, not a waste for money. Yeah, that, that, those are probably the same group that are opposed to having placebos and controls and experiments, because what could that tell you? I'm really curious, how, how was your op-ed received? What kind of feedback did you get to, to this, this work? Well, we pub published the op-ed, which only provoked one letter in response. 
However, we also um, managed to communicate the op-ed to two key, key, key groups. Dennis forwarded it to the Australian Bureau of Statistics and I managed to um, get it trans, um, considered by the national um, committee that had been set up to lead the response. And they took notice and they actually wrote to us, the national committee saying, thank you, we understand and we're going to have discussions about it with the ADS. So I should say it's been very supportive. Uh, they've done their design work, they're ready to go tomorrow. Uh, uh, the resistance is coming from, um, um, from the medical people. Uh, the, committee just, the National Coordination Committee, Nick mentioned, they're quite enthusiastic. They'd like to do it. Uh, but it's the, they can't get the health people on board at this point. What's the opposition? Why would they be opposed to this? I, I think it's what I mentioned before. It's, uh, you know, they, they, there's this feeling um, that the, uh, the test would be wasted. Um, we, we had another complication. Australia bought a whole lot of uh, serological tests, you know, millions of dollars worth, and it turned out that they're faulty. Um, so they, they want to discard them, but... Um, John, you'd know that if you if you if there's measurement error and you know the properties of that measurement error, you can still use these things. You can adjust for the measurement error in different ways. But um, I don't think that's something that's part of their mindset. So we're still working on it. So if you were going to explain to my mother, right, why doing random testing of of individuals is important to understanding the scope of COVID nineteen. How would you explain that to them? So to a layperson, we talked. You talked a lot about sort of the the statistical reasons why, um, or in your first response, but sort of you know why should the everyday Australian or everyday American um, be supportive of random testing? What does it tell us that that what we're doing now won't? It will tell us how things are now in terms of how many people are infected or likely to be infected, and how these things are changing, especially in response to initiatives taken by governments. If I, I, I could just add something, the, um, the, the public debate has been such in Australia that I, I think most people have a broad understanding of what the reproduction coefficient has been. Um, the Chief Medical Officer in these presentations has presented graphs showing this. So, um, I, I think there's a general understanding that if we're going to control the pandemic, we have to keep that less than one. Um, now we're at the stage now where restrictions are being lifted. Um, and it's still important that that reproduction coefficient is less than one. Um, so I, I think that um, that is a useful way of trying to explain to the lay people uh, exactly you know, what's happening and you know, what, what, you know, why restrictions can't be lifted fast and what a lot of people would like them to be and so forth. Can you, can you also explain, you mentioned in your editorial, uh, both regional testing and national testing. What are the advantages doing both of those? I know now in Ohio, they're talking about doing random testing, but what are, why, why shouldn't we just do national testing and forget about regional testing? What are some of the advantages of doing both? Okay, um, the, um, the pandemic um, has been managed by um, a national cabinet that was set up um, especially for this purpose, uh, and that's worked very well. Uh, it, it comprised the Prime Minister, 
equivalent uh, your president uh, and the heads of the, each state government. We call them premiers. Um, and um, so there's been a mixture of managing this pandemic nationally, a number of national initiatives, particularly on the economic side, and state-specific initiatives. Um, and the other thing is that uh, a number of the state borders have been closed. Uh, so uh, it does make sense to measure it both nationally and regionally. Uh, the regional numbers are actually very important to, um, uh, to the state governments because they've they got an extra decision to make whether to open state um, government borders or not. So as, you, as you've looked at this, has, has this been the first time you, either of you have written an op-ed like this or letters to, to, the, to editors about, about a, a, an issue in your communities in this um, it, it, for me, it's the first time as a layperson I was invited to write a few as Australian statistician. I don't know about Nick. I've written a few letters when I've been annoyed about something. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my batting average was uh, very low initially, but it's improving now. I think I'm learning to speak in English. <laughs> How has the news coverage? How has the news coverage in Australia been? Do you have criticisms? Has it been pretty good? Are they are there stories they're not getting? Like this one clearly is one. Why we why we haven't been doing random testing earlier? But generally, how is the Australian press? Well, I think it's that? been fairly balanced. Um, there um, there people who think we should be even in any longer in a more restricted. Um, situation I also think we're going too slowly so um, I think the uh, the point of views of uh, both sides have been covered pretty well so how quickly do you think this could be implemented if this if there was a decision to say okay we're going to launch this uh, you know do, do you have a sense I could start this week wow and so if you were going to can you describe kind of the design that's being considered for doing this collection I, I, I'm, I'm not across all the detail, but they, they do have a uh, address file that they use as a framework for their um, household surveys. Um, so it's relatively straightforward to use that. They were also considering, I'm not sure where they got to in the end, actually using a subsample of their monthly population survey because that gave them the advantage that they got all the contact details, not just an address. Um, they've got a, a respondent who uh, uh, understands the ABS. Uh, and also they've got a whole range of data from um, past interviews that they will be able to use. So I know they're seriously thinking about doing that, but uh, I'm not quite sure where they, where they ended up. There's another component to this, Richard, uh, and that is that you don't just want to know who's got it, who hasn't got it and might get it, or who's got it and is asymptomatic. You want to be able to study the evolution of it. How long does it last? Do people get it? Can they recontact it? And so on. So part of the survey process, it's not just a survey, it's an ongoing process, would be, would, would be related to tracking some individuals. In other words, a longitudinal study as well as a basic random sampling study. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking about COVID-19 with veteran government statisticians, Nick Fisher and Dennis Truin. So I think Richard asked about the news coverage, and then obviously this issue of 
not randomly testing individuals, obviously, is a story that maybe needs more coverage. But are there stories and the numbers related to this pandemic that you think journalists are not covering or that they could be covering better? I think uh, I think I'd like to refer to uh, the title of our editorial, which got changed and which were <laughs> before it was printed, which was estimating the known unknowns. And I think there are still a number of known unknowns and the journalists have not got data about that. So they can't right. write stories. Right. They yeah. don't know what they don't, what they're right. missing out on. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, journalists, we tend to like to cover things that, um, you know, we chase the facts. And, and I think even prior to COVID-19, covering anything around medicine or science can be difficult because uncertainty isn't the name of the game when it comes to a lot of this research. And journalists are often deeply uncomfortable with the idea of uncertainty when it comes to their own reporting. Um, so I just was wondering, like, yeah. Um, well, perhaps I should correct my answer. The, um, um, they've done a pretty good job of reporting the numbers that have been presented to them. Uh, Behind those numbers, as you just said, there's a, there's a high degree of um, uncertainty. Uh, there are some, key, some, some fairly important assumptions, which um, uh, I, I think are a bit shaky without um, um, using the language we've been using, more knowledge of, of the unknown. So, but the, you know, in terms of what the journalists have been given, they've presented that in a, a reasonably good way, I think. I wonder if I could segue into something that may be of more general interest to to John, for example, and that is that maybe there is a huge opportunity here for statisticians um, to work with journalists to get the message across that you don't need to collect an enormous amount of data to get a reliable, uh, to get actionable data. That's the first thing. And the second thing is the importance of having a general statistical voice um, feeding in at the very top level of government decision making. Now, you might think, oh, well, the head of the Australian Bureau of Statistics, you know, there's, there's um, a senior statistician um, feeding, that, feeding into that, his views into that national committee. Well, first of all, the head of the Australian Bureau of Statistics doesn't need to be a statistician. Uh, but secondly, it could be an economist, but secondly, that's a person whose interests are in one particular area. But there are often more generic issues, which, um, if you like, a more general a statistician thinking more generally uh, would, have, would be able to have informed opinions about that aren't being fed in. The thing that has struck me in all of this is how few epidemiologists have got a, some, any sort of broader statistical knowledge. Now, they don't seem to be interested in broader statistical questions. Um, and one of the worrisome things, I think, for both Dennis and me has been the fact that, uh, and this is not just in Australia, it's not all, all the, there are different epidemiological groups around and they tend to compete and at least um, a few governments, particularly the Australian government and the British government, have been relying on input principally from one group of epidemiologists rather than from the whole industry. So there are some you know, broader issues here that, really, that 
could form the basis of an investigative report. Actually, I've been a little impressed. I've been pretty impressed at some of the, the the rapid modeling results that I've seen come out. I mean, there there's been work that was done tracking uh, something like thirty two thousand cases in Wuhan, and there have been some other work that's been focused on some of the the tracking of of cases in India. And uh, so there there have been some some very quick turnaround and work that's been presented. I you know your your comment, Dennis, about like the estimates of this infectivity rate. You know, and some of the uncertainty of this. And I, you know, I look at some of the model projections, and I, I often think there's this, this almost, there's this false sense that's communicated when I look at this that people are not realizing that those are, are extrapolations into a future where there's uncertainty in the inputs. And, and I wonder just, you know, what are some of the strategies that you might suggest for better communicating some of that uncertainty, you know, Dennis and Nick, as you, th as you think about that and think about these models and how they're being used and promoted. And I, can I add to that too, John, because that reminds me of an early number I saw, an early prediction that in the United States, eventually when this thing was finished, two thirds of the population will have had COVID-19. And I always wondered, how do they know that? Where is that prediction coming from? How do you make these kinds of predictions? Uh, without doing this kind of random testing. That's, I was flabbergasted. Well, I think it, it, as statisticians, if we looked into um, some of the models that were making those sort of estimates, you would find significant flaws. A lack of any sensitivity analysis to, uh, to, the, to the assumptions. Um, the Swedish epidemiologists made uh, similar uh, type of calculations. That, you know, they basically went for herd immunity strategy, though they may not have uh, said it explicitly. Um, and when uh, even though they'd had a very high number of cases compared with um, their neighbours, um, uh, the, the proportion of a population of antibodies was only 7%. Uh, but it would be close to 35% at this stage. So, yeah, there's, there's something's gone wrong. Either the models are wrong or the assumptions are wrong. I suspect it's a ladder, actually. Um, but I think this is, um, uh, it, 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 the ISI at its two yearly sessions um, does have joint sessions with other professional associations. And I, I think for the next meeting, John, we should really look at doing something with the Epidemiological Association. Um, but there, there, there's going to be other pandemics. And um, hopefully we're through the worst of this by um, July next year. Uh, but I, I think there's some really important learnings, uh, particularly in how uh, statisticians and epidemiologists uh, can work together better in helping um, uh, resolve future pandemics. I, I think that that's, that comment that you just made, that there will be other epidemics, really comes back to your article. I mean, having having this type of mechanism for studying the population now routinely in place and routinely implemented is seems critical to me it's it's i i at times i worry that we think of of public health as this luxury that we don't have to consider until we do <laughs> you know until until things are really really at at high risk so i i i think that your your call for this this current pandemic is something that's probably a it's a it's a framework and a call for something that needs to be in place as we move forward for for monitoring and considering the health of our populations. Yeah, I have a I have a question for the statisticians. So I just 
you know, I'm reading this article about what Ohio is going to do for random testing, and it says they're going to randomly test 1,200 volunteers. Now, can you do a random test from volunteers? I don't. I know enough to think that's not right. That was a headline. So, what's the deal there? And John, do you know what's going on in Ohio? And and explain why you can't do a random test from a sample of 1,200 volunteers. So who are you going to get tested? The ones who, who will volunteer um, will be those who have got a bit of time on their hands, um, but uh, who, who are feeling a bit insecure. Uh, perhaps those who have got some symptoms. It's going to be a very biased test. Um, uh, I, I think you'll find that the uh, middle to older people will be uh, hugely overrepresented, the young adults. Mm -hmm. The ones who socialised um, will be vastly underrepresented. Thank you. That's uh, yeah, what, what, what he said. You know, this is a. <laughs> what did you, I, you see know, I saw that. When that said voluntary, I said, that's just crazy. That's yeah. just <laughs> it, it is just crazy, but it, it's going on all around the world. I mean, they, that's what's going on in England as well. Oh, you know, all the 10,000 or 100,000 volu people volunteering to take a test. How will you use the information? How would you imagine a national random test to work? Yeah, if, if if you know, I because you know in the United States people don't want to wear masks. Like there's protest about wearing masks in public, and so I just wonder how how do you pull off a national sized random test of people to try to figure out you know you know where the disease is. Well, a number of countries have done it. Um, UK is doing a very large scale one um, right now. Um, They've even publishing results from it. So mm -hmm. it, it can be done. The, the, the test itself uh, apparently doesn't require a lot of training. It can be um, administered by, you know, easily by a nurse, but even um, someone who's not um, a nurse who's had a, a small amount of training. Uh, and I, I believe the blood prick um, type test isn't all that hard to um, uh, do as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, I guess the issue is um, uh, people actually, you know, face to face with uh, with other people. So they would have to have um, uh, a degree of protection in um, uh, in the clothing they're wearing. They would have to wear a mask, gloves, and that sort of thing. But um, uh, it, it seems that there's enough people who are prepared to do that. Uh, mm -hmm. um, in, in Rosemary, in a in an ideal world, um, you have the Bureau of the Census, in your case, design the sampling framework, and then a drone vampire <laughs> moves around <laughs> and, and sucks five to ten mils out of the selected individuals <laughs> and takes it back for analysis. Right. <laughs> I want to see you write that up for a human subjects <laughs> approval process, Nick. <laughs> the drone vampire solution. I That's love right. it. That's <laughs> right. Was planning to use um, specialists who would um, go in a, you know, it would, it was like a taxi. It'd be labelled apparently. It would go around to multiple households and uh, and, and get the uh, get the test. But the the questions themselves, um, you're getting the demographic and other details, uh, could be done by uh, by telephone by the uh, national statistics office. Mm -hmm. In a country like the United States, with 330 million people, how many people would you have to test in a national sample, random sample? Um, I, I think UK 
from memory, uh, surveying about 10,000. This is not something that where you, you like, uh, it's not like unemployment where you need a fairly precise number. Um, uh, if you get an order of magnitude number, you know, with a reasonable um, confidence range, it's still quite useful. So, yeah, we're, we're not, you don't need massive surveys. Um, you know, a survey, I, I would guess, you know, a survey of 10,000 would be, would be adequate. Richard, it depends on the, um, the, the degree to which you want to be able to drill down and look at things at a state or even a local level or look at specific subgroups. Um, but if you're just forming a more general picture, you can get away with a, uh, what appears to be a ridiculously small sample size. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Nick and Dennis, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for the air, Tom. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Statistics.